0: So I was thinking this week, um, so we have um, next week, we'll talk about Pentecost, and, um, and then we'll start a new series. Actually, we're not starting at the weekend of Memorial Day, um, but we're starting the first week of June, a series where we're looking at about 12 weeks in the Old Testament, just kind of walking through what's that look like. Um, but I was thinking about how this week, as we look at this text from 1 John chapter 5 in just a couple moments, how really this text is so radically defined by a simple idea. Um, Have you ever found yourself noticing that there's few things more compelling in life than a really good life story? Like when you hear someone's story about their life and it's really compelling, you just kind of find yourself captivated and fascinated and stuck and you listen. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us have ever turned on a television and found ourselves watching an episode of 2020 or Dateline or one of those other shows and we're going, I just got sucked in. Right? I mean, some of you are not going to acknowledge it. That's fine. But there's something about, like, that person seems so normal. They just live down the street. I never thought it would have been them, or they would have come from that, or that was their background. I never would have known. Right? There's something compelling about people's stories. In fact, I believe almost anyone, and pretty much everyone, has a compelling story. If you begin to ask enough questions about where they're from and where they grew up and practices in their home and who their family and friends are, you'll begin to find stuff eventually that you're fascinated by. Where where were they in the birth order? What what was impactful? What were the things they remember growing up? I, I don't care who you're talking to. If you begin to ask those questions and those stories, you'll find that that's true again and again. But the truth is, not just a person's story, but any compelling story, is something that draws us in. Whether it's on television, or in a book, or a movie, or in a theater, or a musical, doesn't really matter. Compelling stories draw us in. And have you ever been around that person It's a really, really good storyteller? I mean, I should pause for a second. There are a lot of people who tell a lot of stories, and they're bad storytellers. Like, they think they've hit the, like the moment of the climax of the story, and you're like, that's it? You're done? Okay, thanks. Um, but like a really good storyteller, we kind of lean in and listen, and we all have been around those people, and they tell stories. Everyone kind of just stops what they're doing and moves a little closer, and they listen a little more intently, and they're waiting. And, and the best storytellers, here's the thing about the best storytellers, they know their story. They know what they're going to say. Now, Some of them, it's completely factual. Other times, they're pretty good at embellishing a little bit of their story and just adding a little bit to it. And so, but what we find again and again is that good storytellers know their stories. Do you know your story? I mean, sometimes you meet someone and they tell you their life story and you can't doubt it's true. You can see it by the facial expressions they give, by the emotions that they share. You can hear it in their voice. You can see it in their eyes. There's something about that story that they're sharing that is incredibly compelling. In fact, one of the most compelling stories that I continually hear again and again is when someone tells me the story of their life and what happened when they encountered Jesus in a way that changed them. Pretty much every one of those stories has the same kind of pattern to them. They'll tell me about their life, who they were, when they encountered Jesus, how they have been changed, and how He continues to change them. That's really the pattern of everyone who finds himself following Jesus. That's really the pattern again and again. And it may be they encounter Jesus several times over a long period of time, but they tell these stories. And they divide their life into these kind of two and three parts as they tell the story. Because they realize that's kind of how their life is described. And so I want to say this today. Um, The truth is, no one who tells their story about faith can prove it. Not one person can prove their encounter with Jesus. They can't do it. And if today you're uncertain of whether you want to believe, I totally get it. I really do. The story of a guy who rose from the dead, who lived 2,000 years ago, and yet he's still present with us through this thing called the Holy Spirit, and God is at work in the world. And you're going, that, that sounds like a crazy story. And I get it because people tell you, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, which means by definition, I am a disciple of Jesus, which means I am a follower of Jesus. And then you hear their things they care about and they talk about. They talk about their job or their family or their politics or their wallet, or whatever, and they talk about that all the time, but they never really talk about Jesus, but, oh, I'm a Christian. I get it. I'm not sure I would be a Christian if I only knew those people either. But sometimes, sometimes, um, we find that even though those people, there are people who their life story doesn't fit with the words they speak, that you begin to meet people that, because they have encountered Jesus, they actually begin to live differently. There is an obvious change in their life. So here's the crazy thing. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, our life story, our testimony is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. I'll say that again. Our testimony is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. No wonder sometimes people are uncertain if they believe But we can talk about some pressure. No pressure. But here's the reality of that. Within that, what we find again and again is if we learn to speak with humility and graciousness, that people begin to listen to our stories in different ways. They begin to lean in more. They begin to wonder what is different about us. They begin to see life-changing behavior and patterns and words. And they notice a distinct difference in the way you continue to live, right? It's not that. That when we come to know Jesus, we're, we're made perfect, and that we never do anything wrong, and we never make a mistake, or that we never, never have regrets. It's that we are like Peter, right? Follow of Jesus. Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? He asks, who do people say that I am first, right? Who, who do the people say I am? And they give all these answers, and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter goes, well, I mean, you're the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's come to save and redeem and restore and make all things new. You are the one who is the hope of the world. Peter, great answer. But yet, not long after this, Peter denies Jesus. I don't know that guy. Peter, if you read through the letters in the New Testament, you see again and again, Peter like, makes some mistakes as leader in the early church. But here's the thing about Peter and his life. He confessed when he fell short. He didn't hide it. He acknowledged it. He didn't try to act like it wasn't true. In fact, Peter, what was so compelling about Peter was the continued life change of his life. He continued to live a unique way, a unique story. He was not perfect, but he was definitely transformed. And so, for you and I, it's not that our life story has to be perfect. Perfect, unique word. Um, it's not, not what God calls us to. You go, well, wait. wait. doesn't it say be perfect as I am perfect. Yeah, but that's different context in the way you think of perfect. It's this idea that we don't have to sin in our life. We can say that willful things that God says don't do, we, we cannot do those. So that's actually a, a possibility for you and I. I know, crazy talk, right? But this is what John wants us to understand. And What he writes here, John, is your story matters. And the way you articulate your story with words and actions, it desperately matters. The story of God's redemption of all things in the world. God's story of redeeming all that is broken, of giving new life. This is what John wants us to understand. And here is what John writes. Because he hopes at the end of the day that we'll live with hope here and now and maybe forever. And This is what John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the crazy thing about this. John writes this in a world in which testimony mattered so much. So I don't, I mean, I don't know a lot about the legal system at some level. I mean, I, I pay attention to some things, and I learned some stuff. I probably wanted to be a lawyer when I was younger, and so I, I've read enough to be dangerous but not enough to really know anything, right? Probably like most of us in this room. But here's the thing for the way it works. like, How many times sometimes people can be convicted with the testimony of one person if their testimony is compelling enough? In the ancient world, that was not true. If you didn't have the testimony of two to three witnesses, then your testimony was invalid. One person was not enough to convict of a crime. You could have a vendetta, you could be saying the wrong things. I mean, one person was not compelling enough for you to be convicted of a crime in the ancient world. No matter how compelling the story, no matter how credible the witness no matter how good they were with words, it did not matter. It was not enough. Now, to be clear, were there times when someone was convicted with the testimony of one? I'm sure. They just weren't supposed to be. That wasn't the way they intended it to be, because they felt like if one person was all that was sharing it, it probably wasn't enough to convict of the crime. For some of us today... We're like, that makes some sense, because if only one person were to tell me about Jesus, it would not be enough to persuade me to think about wanting to believe in this story of a resurrection, this idea of new life. We're in this Easter season. This is the the last Sunday of the Easter season. We would not be thinking about the Easter season if it was just one person's testimony, one person's story, one witness. That would not be compelling for you or I. But we also believe people all the time. That's where John begins. You hear people tell a story and you go, oh yeah, it makes total sense. I believe you. And not all the time are there witnesses of two and three. But sometimes one person's more than enough. In our legal system, one witness sometimes is credible enough. One is enough for that. And so John begins, like we believe other people's stories. You can use story as testimony. It's the same word. It's pretty interchangeable. But then we begin to think, well, what does that mean for us? Well, he says, if you believe the testimony of people, why would you not believe the testimony of God? All right. Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, when did God testify? I'm trying to remember when that happened. I don't remember God testifying to me. I don't ever remember seeing that take place. And so John gives this particular answer. He says this, this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life and life in his son. Okay. Again, My question still remains, when did God testify? Like Jesus came, okay, but I wasn't there for that. Jesus died, lots of people saw it. Jesus rose from the dead, several hundred people saw it. So, how do I know God's testimony is true? Here's where the scary part for you and I comes in. Because people share it. People tell that story. People tell their story, and that is the witness to God's testimony. Now sometimes I wish God would just actually speak. It'd be really cool. I've never experienced that in my life. Don't I actually don't ever plan on ever experiencing it. But I will say this, and I've said this to others, like, have you ever heard God speak? And I I was asked this question in my office just a few weeks ago. Someone came in, just really struggling with some stuff and and asked, and they said, I just never hear God speak. And I said, You know what? I never have either. I've never heard God's audible voice. I don't actually think I ever will. I said, but look, I can tell you, is I have spent lots of time praying, and I have had other people speak into my life and use words that I had no doubt in the moment those words came from God, but were spoken through another person, because that's most often, nearly always how God works, through other people. Their testimony, their words, their witness, their Story. He uses these words, he says, has the testimony um, in him? Has God in him? Has the testimony of God in him? In other words, our lives are the witness God is talking about in this. And so we most often know God's testimony is true. We see a transformed life. No wonder we live in a culture and a day in which people are confused about what Christianity is. Because I can say what it is and then I can act like a fool. I can say this is what Christianity is and I can rail on my opinions. I can say this is what Christianity is and then I sound like a crazy person. That is not Christianity. That is not being a disciple of Jesus. It's actually called being a false witness. But what might it look like if we really were committed to following Jesus? I mean, this is what John wants to know. Whoever has the sun has life, and whoever doesn't have the sun doesn't have life. And you're like, well, how do I have the sun, and how do I know? And all these kind of questions run through our minds, right? We're, we're confused about what that could look like. But, but what if it's as simple as this? Are we living a different life than we used to? This is a testimony of my life, my words and actions. Does it reflect the character of Jesus or not? Am I seeking to live after him? Is that where I find myself? If not, maybe it's not the right place. If not, maybe I'm not falling after Jesus. If not, maybe I don't have the son. But here's the thing. It is free. It is gift. It is invitation for you and I to accept and to know. And John writes this. You can have this eternal life. What is eternal life? It is life of the divine in this moment here and now. It is life connected to God for all eternity. And here's the crazy thing about us for that. Um, it's a gift that you have to choose to receive, but, but honestly, like if it's just eternal life and that's it, think about if you could extend your life forever, but you always dealt with all the bad stuff of your life. Does that sound like a gift? It sounds like a curse. But that isn't the invitation of God. Is that by the work of Jesus, by us living in him, by us living in God's testimony, in the person of Jesus, it will begin to change us. And if we continue to pursue following Jesus, we'll find that God's work in us begins to do these radically new things. In fact, what we find is in God, there are things that change in us. They change how we perceive the world, how we understand things. And here's what we begin to find. Is that with God, regardless of circumstances, we enter into a place of serenity. Peace, hope. And this is not the kind of peace that is just absence of conflict. This is the kind of thing that is all-encompassing of who we are. In fact, I would say it this way. When we come to know God in these ways, it does a few unique things for us, uh, unique attributes. What we find is in God, there is power to defeat frustration. In God, there is power to defeat frustration we must live in that place where it's frustrated and we just want to change stuff. That's not how God calls us to live. Are we trusting him enough? In God, there is holiness. And this leads to the defeating of sin. Now, I want to I share a difference because I think sometimes it's helpful. We don't know what sin, when we say sin, we're like, what does that mean? We think in the scripture there are certain things that God says clearly don't do these things. Those things are destructive to you and to others. Those things we call sins. A temptation is not a sin. Having a thought is not a sin. Now, if we dwell on that thought, if we live in that thought, if we let that drive our behavior, now we're moving into the place of sin. Being tempted is not the same thing as committing sin. I want to be clear on that. However, sometimes we're invited to live a particular way, to do something, and we choose not to do it. That may be sin for us in those moments. But in God, there is power to defeat that. In God, there is love. And that leads to the end of bitterness and hatred. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. That's how I would describe it. I mean, I, I, if I wasn't a pastor, I wouldn't have any social media accounts. Like, so if I ever leave this vocation, which I don't foresee ever happening, but if I ever did, I would cancel every social media thing tomorrow and be super excited about it. And here's why. Because there are people that I meet who I know love Jesus. At least I think they do. But by the words they post on social media, I don't know about that anymore. Because there's a lot of bitterness. And there's a lot of hatred that they spew. And I think that's your testimony. That's your witness. Because if that's what it looks like and sounds like to be a follower of Jesus, I'm out. But, But I also think occasionally I'll see people who try to find ways to lift others up who offer prayer for people. And so like I said, love hate, I love those things. I love the opportunity to see friends and family and people far away. Like that's that's incredible that we can do that. That is incredible. I love that we can send out daily devotions to people who are part of our community of faith and I don't have to actually be in your living room and we don't have to figure out all kinds of stuff. We can post it. It's, it's pretty cool. But I'm incredibly saddened because I think some of us have forgotten here's what God God's love does in us if we will allow him to work. It will be the end of our bitterness our hatred. And if you find yourself really bitter or struggling with hate, I would challenge you to allow God's love to reshape your life. And it may be a prayer you and I have to pray again and again and again. And also in God, there is life. The defeat of death itself. That's what the resurrection brings for us, this hope that we can live a radically new life. John wants us to know there is a life we are invited into that includes all these things, but it is only found in Jesus. It's found by the testimony of God that we can know life when we are in God. So what do we do with this? Maybe this is helpful for us today. Jesus shows us who God is. And in knowing Jesus, we come to know God. Jesus shows us who God is, right? There's all kinds of things throughout the scripture. Like, well, is that what God would do? Or is that what God would do? Or did, or did, did they understand God rightly here? And all these kind of things. And we just kind of go like, because I read the whole Bible, I'm like, ah, ooh. What do I have to do with this? And Jesus goes, well, i tell you what. I, I'll tell you all that. But here, look at me. You don't know who God is. Look at me. Right? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not a follower of the Bible. Now, I think the Bible reveals to us who God is, and we get to understand who Jesus is, and why it matters. Like, that's all fair and true. But I am not a follower of a book. I'm a follower of a person. It's the definition of Christianity. so we're called Christians, not... I don't know what... The Bible didn't exist until, like, a few hundred years after Jesus, but bible I not don't, I don't know what a word would be. We, we value it. It has authority. We think it matters, but I'm a follower of the person of Jesus. That is what Christianity means. That's why we are gathered here today, because we want to know what it looks like for Jesus to reshape our life, because we think the resurrection is the singular event that has changed all of human history, and frankly, can change our lives. And so I want to say this today. Um, sometimes you're like, well, what, what's a witness? What's a testimony? What's a... So, so if I were to translate the Greek New Testament, I know it's in Greek, it's weird language, but, but this word that we're using for testimony, we also could use the word witness, the same word. And so if I were to talk about that, you might know the word better as martyr. Martyr just means witness. The word meant only just witness, like I was telling someone something, I was witnessing to something. It's what it meant for a long time, until people who said they were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus began to be killed for their faith. Then the word was attributed to the idea of martyrdom, but not before that. It was the idea of witness. And so there's, you know, there's the earliest account of martyrdom in the Bible, is person, Stephen, he's one of the seven people called to help serve tables and those kind of things, and he's killed. And as he's being stoned to death by people who are persecuting for his faith, his words are not, God, I hope they get what's theirs. It's not, I'm going to get even. It's not, you wait. It's his father. Forgive them. His witness changed something his witness we're still talking about. If he had said, I'm going to get even, we probably wouldn't be talking about him today. A witness of his witness was the person of Paul who became the really great evangelist of the church. But The first known martyr, the first known witness that we have written about outside of the scriptures was a guy named Polycarp. And here's what we know about Polycarp. He was the, the bishop of Smyrna. And here's what's recorded about His execution. The whole multitude marveling at the bravery of the God-loving and God-fearing race of Christians began shouting, Away with the atheists! Find Polycarp! They were considered atheists because they believed in just one God, not several. Polycarp entered the stadium. The proconsul tried to persuade him to recant saying, Have respect for your age and other such things that they are accustomed to say. Swear by the Jews of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless heathen who were in the stadium and motioned toward them with his hand, and then groaning as he looked at heaven, said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I am a Christian. Polycarp was then burned at the stake for his faith. He prayed a prayer before the fire was lit that he would become an acceptable sacrifice for Christ. When the fire was lit, the account of his martyrdom states... That the aroma of his death was like bread baking or like gold and silver being refined in a furnace. In standing up for Christ, Polycarp became the embodiment of the living bread. Do you and I witness in that kind of way? Are we like Stephen, willing to say, Father, forgive them? Are we saying, like, I hope you get yours? Love ends bitterness and hatred. God has the power to defeat frustration and sin and to give hope where there seems to be no hope. This doesn't mean life is perfect, but it means we find patience and the ability to practice a way of living that brings life that is eternal, connected to divine, here and now. It invites us to a unique way of living, and I love these words of Rick Williamson, a New Testament scholar, says this, having an inner confidence of a right relationship with God can hold us steady in the most difficult of circumstances. Are we willing to lay down everything and trust that God truly is Our witness is defined by its truth—the truth of whether or not we actually live out what we say we believe. In fact, um, our testimony is often driven by a particular experience. Most of us would talk about an experience of coming to know Jesus, this moment in time when we said, "Hey, I, Father, we forgive me. I want to live a particular way. I want to be radically reshaped and remade." And and we could tell you about that experience. We may not be able to give you like perfect words or the right theological terms, and that's okay. But we could tell you about our story about coming to know God. That's why I love these words of John Wesley, because it's just his words of his story. He says this, it's an inward impression on the soul, whereby the Spirit of God immediately and directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus Christ hath loved me and given himself for me, that all my sins are blotted out, and I, even I, am reconciled, to God. So we're invited to not only accept God's testimony as true, but in fact, you and I are invited to share our testimony, our story. See, when I was growing up, we used to do this thing at church um, that was both good and bad, and I'll explain why it was both good and bad. People would share their testimonies, their stories about what God was doing in their life, it was good because sometimes you heard some great, compelling stories. It was also bad because I heard some really bad theology over the years. Like, really bad. Um, like, God did this? No, God didn't do that. Um, that's not how, the character of God at all. <laughs> and I'll never forget, there was a person, um, I'm like 99.9% sure they would never watch this. so I won't use their name, though. But, but a person I went to church with in Illinois. And um, almost every time we would do the testimony thing, they would stand and they would talk about God's work in their life. Oh, Just trying to tell you this great story. And I knew uh, one of our college students that was at the church there worked at a local restaurant. And this family came in there all the time. And he said, do you know the worst person I wait on every single time? In fact, we all want not to get their table, that guy. We all want to avoid his table like the plague, because it's never good enough. It's never The whole time, he said, said, so I go to church here, and it just drives me nuts, because I hear him stand up and talk, and I'm like, ooh. That's disappointing. But sometimes when someone tells you their testimony, their story, it's so compelling. It's so truthful. It's so humble. It's so gentle that you can't help but go, God, make me more like that. I can tell you some moments of those stories as well. So the question for you and I is this: um, Are we living this kind of life that we would say these words? Our testimony needs to be shared with our words and our actions. Do our words and our actions line up? It's not this call to perfection because it may be you'd say like I'm not doing very well at this. But it's the humility to acknowledge that regularly when you tell your story. In fact, I'd say it this way. Um, If something in our life has changed us so much, if it matters so much to us, if it's that life-changing, wouldn't we tell people about it? If at the end of the day, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you believe that Jesus did die for you so that you could be forgiven for your sins, so that you could know eternal life, so you could know that life here and now, so that you could live with hope in the midst of all circumstances, wouldn't you want other people to know that? And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not living that life, totally get why you wouldn't want to tell anybody about it. But if you say Jesus is Lord, that means he's the Lord of everything. So why wouldn't you want people to know about what he has done in your life? And sometimes we make it really hard to do that. Like, you got to have this, like, you got to know the whole Bible and there's these weird formulas people try to come up with. Those are not helpful, by the way, when it comes to knowing Jesus. What is helpful is if you can tell people this, hey, here's who I was, then I met Jesus, Here's how he has changed me and continues to change me. That's it. You don't need to me- memorize the Bible to do that. You can point people to scriptures that have impacted your life, of course. But here's the thing people who don't yet believe in Jesus don't believe the Bible's true. We believe it's true, but they don't have to be in the same place that you and I are. In fact, some of us in this room aren't even sure if we believe it either, right? Like, that some of you, you're not sure if you want to be a follower of Jesus yet. That's okay. But when you're in, be all in. Stop being on the fence. So here's why we say that. Like, we, we've said that we want to see what God might do among us as a community of faith over the next 10 years till 2030, and this last year was kind of weird. So it, it's the first day I'm actually saying this again in, in the last year because it's kind of a weird thing to say, hey, why don't you tell people about Jesus and invite them to church? That sounds like a terrible idea in the middle of a pandemic. Um... What I'm saying to you today, so we have these little cards that are available. In fact, it's on the wall here if you've missed it. You can take a picture with your phone. Some of you like, that's a better avenue for you. And so we said that we think there are gaps that exist for us in life. Gaps from, from where we are to where we think we ought to be. Where, where we are to where God may want us to be. From where we are to where we could be. From what is to what could be. And so the last one on here just says, share, right? In other words, tell your story we didn't make it like super hard. You don't have to like, tell like a million times because some people are like, man, how many, you know, like every day I can tell somebody, no, here's, here's the challenge. It's really hard. Six times a year. It's an individual personal challenge. Six times a year, tell someone about what God has done in your life. You're like, well, I don't know how to do that. Like I just told you, it's really easy. Here's who I was before I met Jesus. Then I met Jesus. And here's what he's done in my life and continues to do. And you don't have to say you're perfect. You just say, I'm wanting to live a transformed life like, okay, well, cool. How's the community faith committee that? Well, we added a, an extra part. That's like community, like corporate, church, all of us. Um, invite someone to church six times a year. Like six times. That doesn't sound like very many. You're right. It's only every other month. Can I do more? Yes. That's the great thing. We made it really low, right? That is low hanging fruit. You can put it in your calendar every other month. Tell someone about how much I love Jesus and how I hope they come to know him as well but we also do it because we know them and we have a relationship with them. I gotta be honest with you, if you just stop a random person on the street, not helpful, by the way, if you know them and you love them, your story is much more compelling. Here's what I hope you and I know. If you will share your story, it just might make an eternal Impact. It will share your story. It might just make an eternal impact. And I want to remind you of what John writes here because honestly, it messes me up sometimes. He says, "How will we know the testimony of God is true by His witnesses?" So if we call Jesus Lord. We say we are a Christian. We are a follower of Jesus. That may you and I live a transformed life. It's not filled with bitterness and hatred. It's not filled with frustration. It's not filled with sin. But that is filled with eternal life. Because that is John's invitation to you and I today. That we accept his testimony as true that we accept and find life in his son, Jesus. In fact, I'm not saying your life isn't filled with issues, but what I'm saying is this. You can live a life filled with issues and filled with hope. And if you've never come to know the hope of Jesus, sometimes sometimes we, so I'll, I'll say this, sometimes we think that if we tell people our faith story, that it's just not good enough. right? I remember like people coming to church when I was young, and they'd tell their story, and it'd be like this, I was on drugs, and I was an alcoholic, and I had had multiple affairs, and I had been divorced 25 times, and I came to know Jesus, and man, my life was radically changed. And I'm like, gosh, that's awesome. God can do really cool stuff. And I'm like, oh, my story's not like that. Right? Here's my story. I was seven years old, and I was sitting in a kid's church service off a room off the gym at my parents' church. And the associate pastor's wife gave a message. I can't tell you anything she said, but I remember she said, if you want to know that you are forgiven and you want to know God's love, then you can, can, can ask God right here, right now. And I knelt at an altar. Seven years old. And I cried. Because I knew there was something not Whole. I didn't plan on telling the story or crying today. Those are new things, right? But I know this from that moment forward, God continued to do a work in my life and still does a work in my life. That's my story. Have there been ups and downs since then? Yes. Have there been moments where I've been uncertain? Yes. Have there been moments where I thought, I don't want to do this. I just want to live however I want to live and not care about the repercussions? Yes. But by the grace of God, he's continued to meet me where I was and say, hey, remember that moment when you said, I want to accept your love? I want to live for you. I want to follow you with my life. Remember those words you said? I remember. Oh, yeah. So I don't care what your story is today. It is good enough to share. Father, we help us this morning as we prepare to sing a song together as you continue to do a work in us and through us and begin to shape us. And so we ask this morning that as we sing a song about our testimony, that you might change our lives, that we might be able to share our testimony, that it might be something in which you do a unique work in us. And maybe today, we're wrestling with whether or not we want to believe in your son in a way that would change our life. We want to believe in him, that we trust the testimony of God is true. It's this invitation to a radical way of life radical way of love, of living this idea of eternal life here and now. It's not a promise of of freedom the way we sometimes think of freedom. It may even lead to our death, like Stephen or Polycarp or others, but we'll find in that a goodness, this aroma of our life will be pleasing to you. And so, Father, will you help us to live a life that says, I am yours, and may others come to know you by our witness, our story, our testimony. May we share our story and may it be filled with love and grace and truth. I pray all this in your son Jesus' name.